With more than 500 programs a year, there's never a dull moment at the Commonwealth Club. If you're a fan of this podcast and you like hearing new and provocative discussions with the most interesting people in the world, consider showing your support by joining the Commonwealth Club and ensuring that the conversations never end. Visit commonwealthclub.org special to get special rates on membership. Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good afternoon and welcome everyone to the Commonwealth Club. I'm Gloria Duffy, President and CEO of the club, and I'm delighted to welcome you all to this important program exploring the societal trauma we're experiencing now during the era of COVID-19. In the Bay Area, the Commonwealth Club has suspended its in-person programming, of course, but the club is holding special new virtual programming. You can learn about all of these offerings at the club's website, commonwealthclub.org. We appreciate you considering donating to the club, and if you wish to do so, please text the word DONATE to 415-329-4231. This helps to support all of the virtual programming. To our audience watching, we want you involved. If you'd like to submit questions, please submit them via the text chat area. Please also share and like this program on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Today's program is underwritten by Kaiser Permanente. It is the fourth in the Commonwealth Club's thought leadership series together with Kaiser, uh, which is called Destination Health, focusing on the future of health, featuring in-depth conversations on the challenges driving physical, mental, and social health. Today, during the ongoing pandemic crisis, when the impact of inequities in health care are particularly profound, we'll discuss what can be done to combat the physical, psychological, economic, and social aspects of inequity in health care in order to foster more equitable and healthier communities. We have a terrific panel with us today, Dr. Joseph Betancourt, a physician, vice president and chief equity and inclusion officer at Massachusetts General Hospital. Dr. Aletha Maybank, physician, chief health equity officer and group vice president of the American Medical Association. Dr. Lena Wen, emergency physician and visiting professor of health policy and management at George Washington University School of Public Health and Dr. Ronald Wyatt, Physician, Vice President, and Patient Safety Officer at MCIC Vermont. Our moderator today, April Domboski, is Health Correspondent for KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. To frame the issue of equity in healthcare, I am now so pleased to introduce Mr. Gregory Adams, Chairman and CEO of Kaiser Permanente. Welcome, Mr. Adams. Thank you, Gloria, and welcome, everyone. Uh, thank you for joining us for this virtual panel. Kaiser Permanente is pleased to partner with the Commonwealth Club in offering today's event. Um, you know, Kaiser Permanente is an amazing organization that's been around for some 75 years. And for 75 years, if we look back at our history, we've been on a path and a journey to really embrace diversity and inclusion and social justice. And yet this past year with the events that we've seen, um, the death of, of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, I mean, our country and the world really sees this as a moment for us to stand up and examine um, who we are, 
of where we are on the journey of inclusion and diversity. And as much as we've stood and have advocated, it was an opportunity for us to step back and to really examine our organization. I made a commitment to the organization that we would look internal, we would understand where we might have issues of systemic racism, or bias, and we've been on that journey. I listened to, I don't know, some um, 20 of our business resource groups and was um, amazed and, and, and actually um, concerned about what I heard in our organization um, as we talked about individual and their experiences. We also made a commitment that as we developed a plan to own what we saw in our organization, that we would also stand up, look out, and be a voice for greater diversity and inclusion in our society and as a corporate organization. During this pandemic um, pro experience, we've all seen the fractures that exist in our society, black and brown communities, others that are marginalized, and yet during this period, we've also seen the opportunity to look at ourselves and look at what can be accomplished um, with renewed commitment and renewed enthusiasm. I've said to our leaders that as much as people are on the streets advocating, um, marching, that we've got to be as diligent and as focused in the boardrooms and in our leadership rooms and meetings in terms of what we are committed to. Through this process, we've completed a strategic plan, believe it or not. And in that plan, we've made a commitment to elevate diversity and inclusion as we've elevated quality and safety. We've also made a commitment to focus all of our quality measures um, and to develop them in a way that they include equity, that they include gender, that they include race, but also that we bring in social issues into how we understand our quality and our outcomes. I think it is a new day and an opportunity for all of us. And I look forward to continued partnership with the Commonwealth Club and to all partnership with all of the communities that Kaiser Permanente is in to make sure that we are owning equity, inclusion, and justice in a way and with a commitment that we as an organization and that we as a society have not owned it in the past. So I'm excited for the panel. I'm excited for where we are today. And I'd like to bring April and the panel onto the screen to really kick off this exciting program. So thank you, thank you all. Thank you so much. Uh, it is such an honor to be here. And I am so glad that we are discussing this topic, especially with these four experts uh, who I am pleased to introduce in a little bit more detail. Dr. Joseph Betancourt is an internal medicine physician as well as vice president and chief equity and inclusion officer of Massachusetts General Hospital. He is also founder and senior advisor at the Disparity Solutions Center at Mass General and associate professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School. Dr. Betancourt is a nationally and internationally recognized expert in health policy, healthcare disparities, diversity, and cross-cultural medicine. He received his medical, his medical degree from Rutgers Medical School and holds a master's degree from Harvard School of Public Health. Dr. Aletha Maybank is a pediatrician and chief health equity officer and group vice Vice President of the American Medical Association. Prior to joining the AMA in 2019, Dr. Maybank was founding Deputy Commissioner for the Center for Health Equity at the New York City Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. 
The center became a model of success recognized by the CDC and the World Health Organization. Dr. Maybank holds a medical degree from Temple University School of Medicine and a master's degree from Columbia University School of Public Health. Dr. Lena Wen is an emergency physician and visiting professor of health policy and management at George Washington University School of Public Health. She was also a medical analyst for CNN and previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner. Last year, Dr. Wen was named one of modern healthcare's top 50 physician executives, and she is one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people. She holds a medical degree from Washington University and was a Rhodes Scholar studying health policy at the University of Oxford. And Dr. Ronald Wyatt is Vice President and Patient Safety Officer at MCIC Vermont. He is former Chief Quality and Patient Safety Officer of Cook County Health in Illinois, and he previously served as Medical Director in the Patient Safety Analysis Center at the U.S. Defense Health Agency. He's an instructor in the School of Health Professions at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, with a focus on health equity, patient safety, and quality. Dr. Wyatt was born in Selma, Alabama, and his family relied on public health clinics for preventive health services. As a child, he saw a general practitioner whose office was segregated by race, and Black people were walk-in only. Dr. Wyatt holds a medical degree and master's degree in health administration from the University of Alabama. I am pleased to welcome all of our panelists. Dr. Betancourt, I'd like to start this conversation with you looking at the situation we are in right now with the pandemic. And you have been charged with leading the COVID-19 response at Mass General. And from the very beginning, before we really even understood how the coronavirus was transmitted, you anticipated that communities of color would be impacted disproportionately, as I'm sure all of our panelists anticipated. And I wanted to ask you, how did you know this and how did you prepare your hospital? Great, thank you, uh, April, for the great question and pleasure to be here with you. And it's great to see my friends and colleagues and I appreciate everybody taking time to join us in this conversation. Um, you know, I think history has been our best guide at how uh, disasters, both man-made and uh, natural, disproportionately impact vulnerable populations. Um, clearly, I think we could just look no far as Hurricane Katrina and how that natural disaster disproportionately impacted communities of color, low-lying areas, uh, levees that weren't uh, kept uh, up well, uh, the impact of race, structural racism, uh, what we call the social determinants of health, which really are vestiges of not, uh, you know, kind of choice of where people want to live in the circumstances that put their health and wellness uh, at risk, but really a, a I think uh, an evolution of a whole series of uh, oftentimes very deliberate policies and practices that uh, lead to, quote unquote, the other side of the tracks. And, and as uh, history has told us time and time again, these populations suffer at much greater rates from, from these types of disasters. So we anticipated, we, we had our surge quite early in, in March uh, of this year, and we anticipated that uh, this would impact communities of color disproportionately. And we quickly tried to do things uh, that I would argue uh, brought together a doorstep to bedside approach to uh, addressing the pandemic for communities of color, not just focusing on ventilators and bed capacity, but really mitigating spread in these same communities that, that I think have these factors that create a perfect storm that have been talked about for months now, which include multi-generational housing, densely populated areas, essential workers, the need for public transportation before we were telling people to mask, language barriers, concerns around immigration, mistrust, 
I mean, th these factors uh, in many ways became instrumental, the proof is in the pudding, and we tried to address those in a variety of ways through community health efforts, mitigating spread by delivering care kits and creating isolation sites for people to, fairly, to safely isolate, to increasing testing and broadening testing criteria when, when testing was a scarce resource. To in our hospital, uh, when we saw that 40% of our patients were Spanish speaking uh, and stripping, outstripping our resources of interpreter services, standing up a group of 50 native Spanish speakers, including myself, who uh, worked with our surge teams to make sure that there was always a Spanish speaking doctor uh, with every interaction with every COVID patient. To providing information in, in multiple languages, to setting up a text messaging platform for patients and employees who have trouble getting information through some of the standard channels that we who are more privileged get them. So those are just some of the things, April, that we did. Happy to talk more, but I, I, we tried to take a comprehensive approach. We tried to you know, literally throw a lot of things on the wall and see what would stick, see, see where we could have impact. We use strong public health principles and I think uh, principles around the elimination of disparities to drive our work and we did the best we could. Yeah, I remember talking to a lot of doctors early on in the pandemic who were, you know, discussing how resources were being shifted around the hospital, you know, folks who, you know, maybe hadn't done trauma care, or critical care since their residency or their internship, you know, were, were getting retrained to help step in in some of these areas. And it was really interesting to me to hear you say that, you know, the resources that you were looking at sort of redirecting were toward interpretive services. Yeah, I mean, I think for us, you know, we understood that, uh, that you know, I think I'll take a step back and say, you know, you, you can't manage what you don't measure. And the good news is that we have the surveillance we uh, to monitor who's in our hospital and, and really to monitor our performance. So we collect race, ethnicity, language, highest level of education of every person who enters our doors. And we use that and stratify our quality metrics by that. We immediately kind of leverage that resource to uh, do surveillance both in our communities and our hospitals. And we did see that 40% of our patients were Spanish speaking. It did outstrip our interpreter services who could no longer go face to face because of our desire to conserve PPE. So we did uh, envision language as an asset, identified Spanish speakers, asked them if they would be willing to redeploy. Uh, individuals from 15 different departments, from trainees to full professors, from 15 different Latin American countries all stood up and, and we um, staffed the surge for six weeks. So, and, I, and I'd end here, April, by saying that we didn't necessarily serve as interpreters. We brought clinical, cultural, and linguistic competence to the encounter. Uh, and I think one of the biggest um, benefits of this is our colleagues really saw the importance of diversity in healthcare and healthcare workforce in ways that they never understood it before. Thank you. Um, Dr. Wen, I'd like to bring you into the discussion a little bit here. We heard from Dr. Betancourt that his hospital was doing some of this community surveillance, some of the, the work that we typically think is for, you know, public health departments to do. And it, it seems, you know, we know we saw a lot of missteps in the early months of the pandemic around testing and contact tracing that in some ways perpetuated inequities rather than help to reduce them. And so, Dr. Wynn, I was hoping you could talk a little bit about what some of these missteps were and what were some of the lessons that we that we learned from them? Yeah, I think in time, um, we are going to look back, at least I hope that we will look back and do a proper analysis of all the many things that went wrong during our response. And I should say, too, all the things that went right, because there are so many institutions, including the one that Dr. Betancourt helps to lead, that did do so many things that were that do set us on the on the right track. But there were also many mistakes. And I think one of the big mistakes is not having a national coordinated plan 
around many of these issues, including testing and contact tracing, April, as, as, um, as you were mentioning. I know that um, we can see now the importance of testing, that we had missed the early cases of coronavirus coming into the country. We were so narrowly focused, for example, on people coming in from Wuhan in China that we missed all the cases that were coming from Europe, from, from other parts of China, because we didn't have the testing. And still, I should say, many months into the pandemic, still don't have sufficient testing. One case was often the canary in the coal mine. And it often meant that there were many others that we just were not picking up on. And in fact, lack of testing and contact tracing was why we had to resort to the shutdowns in the first place. And that because we were not able to ramp up testing and contact tracing enough, that's also why we got to where we are, that with every time you have mitigation measures that then uh, were able to suppress the level of community spread to a certain level, but you're supposed to get testing contact tracing caught up to that point. But since we didn't every time, we ended up having a surge upon a surge. And that's why we're seeing the catastrophic numbers that we are now. In terms of specifically the impact on, on communities of color, um, as all my colleagues here know very well, this pandemic has hit certain communities harder than others. And we also know that whenever there are policies that are unfair, um, that, um, that, that hurt some in the community, those who are affected the most are always those who have the fewest resources, for whom social distancing is a privilege, who don't always have the ability to quarantine and isolate because of fear of lost wages, because they live in crowded multi-generational housing, um, et cetera. And so I think the lessons that we take out of this, I'd say one key lesson other than the obvious, which is having this national coordinated response and clear messaging, et cetera, but I think another clear message is the importance of tracking and data, specifically making sure that we are reporting demographic data as well. If we had demographic data around testing, for example, early on, we might have seen that, let's say, a community overall appears to have a, an acceptable test positivity rate. Let's say it's 5% in the community. But if Latinos are testing, Latino Americans are testing at 30% positive, and African-Americans are testing at 20%. That means that there needs to be much more concerted effort towards those communities. And having that kind of uh, drill down demographic information will be really important as we think through vaccine distribution as well, because we would not want for vaccines to be distributed only to the most privileged communities. And having that kind of data transparency is one way of holding people accountable. And we will certainly uh, move our discussion toward vaccines. I know a lot of people are interested in, in hearing about that. Um, I, I had a follow-up question for you about testing. You know, even at the point where we did identify that there were certain communities that were being hit harder than others. For example, in California, in the San Francisco Bay Area, we had an effort that was intended to increase access to testing for low-income communities of color. It was a, it was a, project backed by a Google program. And even though it was intended for low-income communities of color, they required people to register for an appointment online. And as a result, all of those resources ended up going to white affluent people who came to make use of the testing. And so even when we want to do a good job, there's still these pitfalls, there's still mistakes that we can get made. How, how should we be on the lookout for those kinds of things? Yeah, I think it's such a good point. And it actually brings up the point about telemedicine more broadly as well. I'm a big proponent of telemedicine and telehealth, having been a practitioner of it for, for years. But we also know that when um, new 
um, when when things that are new and innovative come up, that despite the efforts, that were de- despite the best intentions to make it about increasing access, sometimes it could further perpetuate disparities. And so I think part of it is being attentive to each of these issues along the way by speaking to the members of the community who need to be involved in crafting each of these plans that may sound good on paper and may be with the best intentions in mind. But I think had community leaders been involved in some of these efforts, they probably would have pinpointed the problems. I mean, for example, there have been other efforts across the country where getting a a test may require a doctor's note. But if you don't have a physician, then you're also going to be left behind. Or drive-in centers are great if you have a car, but if you don't, uh, might there be other settings in communities that that might drives at churches or something else that 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 might actually or testing at churches that that might actually get at that more. So I, I think being attentive to the access issues and not just the principle of it, but recognizing the practicalities will be really important. And I know this is not the time to discuss it, but just as we think about vaccines, I'm hugely concerned about what that might might look like as well. That the great principle on paper doesn't translate to uh, to the practical reality. Yes. Um, Thank you, Dr. Wen. Um, Dr. Wyatt, I'd like to bring you into the conversation to talk a little bit about how we got here. Uh, You know, we've been hearing from Dr. Betancourt and Dr. Wen about how some of the inequities in our healthcare system are, are manifesting during the pandemic. And as we heard in your bio, you went to a segregated doctor's office as a child where Black patients could only get walk-in appointments. I'm hoping you can give us the historical perspective of how racism got baked into our healthcare system. Sure. Thank you, April. And again, it's an honor to be here with my colleagues uh, to share my thoughts about these topics. Um, so uh, I think we have for too long been ahistorical, um, and we need to, to go back through the, I would just describe it as the pain of history to understand where we are now. Uh, and we, we talk about Henrietta Lacks, we talk about Tuskegee, but I'm, I'm talking about really going back beyond that. Um, so, so when I talk about this, then I'm talking about going back to 1492 uh, and I'm talking about going back to 1619. So, so when we think about pandemics, then I, I would say the original pandemic in the U.S., started in 1492 and 1619. That was when, when Black and Indigenous people and other people of color became the essential, essential workers. Uh, the, the idea of social distancing, from my perspective, started when Black people were chained in the bottom of a slave ship that sailed the Middle Passage where millions of Black people died. And they became essential workers in sugarcane uh, plantations in the Dominican Republic, uh, the tobacco plantations of Virginia, the cotton plantations here where I am in Alabama. So, so this, this pandemic that we're in is not an anomaly for, for Black and Indigenous and people of color populations. That goes through the times of slavery when um, uh, Dr. Cartwright described a condition of Black people that he called dreptomania, which meant um, that ha- you had to have a mental disorder as a slave to want to run away. Uh, that goes through the retribution, peonage, Jim Crow, uh, when, when W.E. DuBose wrote his, his uh, treatise called The Philadelphia Negro, and he described what he called a peculiar indifference uh, to the, pop, the Black populations in Philadelphia. And then that goes to where we are through Jim Crow uh, up to mass incarceration, which 
you know, it's now called the new Jim Crow. So I would say that uh, the, this pandemic that we talk about now should not come as any surprise. Uh, all of the signals were there. They were not anomalies. And, and, and from my perspective, it's almost fatalistic to say, well, we have these Black and Indigenous and, and people of color populations who are, who are at higher risk. So they were at higher risk before COVID uh, came to the U.S., and we can use the data, and I so much appreciate Joe and, and, and Dr. Wynn for the data work that they do to demonstrate this. That data was there, and I think in many ways underappreciated. Those were the signals that if we get hit with something like this, then, then there are populations that were already um, devalued, that were in many ways dehumanized, that there was allocations of resources that were allocated in an unjust and an unfair way that then leads to these outcomes that we see. And these outcomes that we see now in this pandemic really are systematic and they're systemic. Uh, they reflect uh, institutional and structural racism that existed before um, um, COVID. Uh, and many organizations, institutions, and dare I say leaders knew this pre-COVID. Um, so it should not come as a surprise. And as I say, um, that, you know, the canary in the K mine for COVID was already deeply short of breath before COVID hit and was ignored. Uh, and we have to understand why um, th these signals were ignored. Why were they treated with such indifference? Why were there eight or so zip codes in New York City that stood out as very different um, when, when COVID uh, hit New York City, and I was there during that first surge of it, and then how it spread across the country. So, so back to Joe's point then, when we think about what we, we like to now call the social determinants of health, they are not new. Uh, this is the stuff that's been killing us for hundreds of years, uh, and those things have made Black and Indigenous and people of color populations uh, disposable, uh, people who live in sacrifice zones, who are impacted by environmental racism, segregated housing, underappreciated jobs, uh, and, and the list goes on. Underneath that, I do believe that a, a core to this, uh, from, from this, our profession, is a lack of respect, uh, inadequate compassion, and the stripping of dignity from people of color, uh, Black and Indigenous populations. So, so if anything, this has taught us, don't ignore these signals and assume that they're somehow anomalous. You mentioned the work that I did when I was at the Defense Health Agency. I was on the federal, uh, uh, inside a federal group that had a playbook to, to respond to a pandemic. We went through scenarios. Where were the supply chains, the, the federal um, um, uh, stockpiles, how to handle transportation, distribution? That was a complete playbook that for some reason, I would say it's systematic, uh, was ignored uh, and now we're playing catch up and we'll get into some of the, the catch up later. But if I, if I begin to think about what's driving this in black indigenous people of color populations, it is mistrust, it's distrust, uh, and it's a lack of trust that is, that is historic. And, and, and for us to move forward, we have to remove this, this ahistorical thinking. Uh, we have to remove what's been called uh, a myth of meritocracy. We have to somehow find how to, uh, show value in these populations that are so impacted by COVID, but pre-COVID. Um, and then how will we, particularly now going forward, begin to allocate resources 
to the places where they're most needed, not where they most wanted, but where they are most needed. And, and the data that Joe has, the data that Dr. Wynn has, the data that Aletha's working on at the AMA can is just a roadmap to show you where to go to do work that can be sustainable. So, so that this is more than just a moment. Uh, this has to be more than a moment. Uh, and we have to be mindful of that. And I'll, I'll stop there. And, and it's kind of building upon the history and the context of, of race and racism in this country. Um, and, and getting asked about, you know, that medical students have been taught that race is a biological construct rather than a social one. And if I could explain some ways that this idea permeates our healthcare system um, is actually even built into the tests and the algorithms that doctors and the healthcare system use to determine how to deliver care, what types of care um, people uh, should have. And I would start off by saying that it's not only medical students really who have this um, notion that race is a biological construct. This is really an American belief and is also very much rooted in um, our history. And, you know, it's this, the belief and actions that races, races are biologically distinct groups that are determined by genes. And this is known as racial essentialism, but it really has no scientific basis. Our genome project, the Human Genome Project of uh, 2003, that was complete then, really told the science community that we are genetically more alike than there is variation. The variation is very small. Um, but this belief has really, you know, gone across generations and it has really created, created harm. And I think just a little more context, because I'm not sure how well um, informed everyone is around the race con con conversation. I think it's one of the barriers that we have in this country um, is the analysis um, in terms of structures and systems of structures. I mean, systems of power. Um, we, we have a hard time talking about race and racism, but what's nice to see now and, and hopeful to see now is that more people are building that analysis. But race, you know, really was documented as a concept developed in the, the 18th century to really divide human beings into groups, really often typically based on their physical appearance, their skin color, but it also could be social cultural backgrounds. For those who have been in data for a long time, when you look at old data sets, you'll see Italian was, was a race, being Jewish was a race. And so race actually has evolved over time. Um, and it really has been used to establish social hierarchy and, and at one point really ultimately to enslave human beings. Um, and it doesn't really describe, um, race itself doesn't describe the complexity of genetics or ancestry. Um, and genetics and ancestry are really very distinct terms. Um, and ancestry re more so reflects, I would say, kind of our human variations that are due to kind of geographical um, origins of our ancestors, but that's different than race. Race is merely a social and political construct. As I said, it's changed through time. And we even know our US census um, changes the definition of race of almost every uh, 10 years or so. Um, and so race has use in the sense of what was been talked about so far in, in describing what is happening to people, um, race and ethnicity and to communities. And so it's not that we shouldn't collect information on race, but we have to be very careful of how we use that data to generate solutions um, as well as treatment. And we really have to look at the impacts of racism as a system. And just for that definition, and Karmar, this is Kamar Jones' definition of a system that structures the power, that structures opportunity and assigns value based on skin color, advantaging whites and disadvantaging people of color. 
Um, and, and it's that system that we have to have a better sense of what is happening, the impact of that system on race. What is happening to people we have to better understand in the healthcare system. So the American Medical Association um, this past November uh, passed policy, um, one on racism is a public health threat. Um, the second policy was to actually rid healthcare of racial essentialism. And the third was to eliminate race as a proxy for genetics, ancestry, and biology in medical education, research, and clinical practice. Because what medicine and the health community at large has really done, whether it's intentional or not, it has made treatment decisions based on race, which again has no biological basis for disease. So what race-based medicine would tell me is that, you know, I as a black person, if I go into a health center um, and I need to do a test uh, for my lung function spirometry, as they call it, or my, my renal function, my kidney function, um, and they're going to look at the rate of um, filtration. Um, if I were to deliver a baby and um, I would be evaluated based on being black um, and whether or not I had the ability to, if I had a C-section before, if I would be able to kind of deliver that baby vaginally. And so my treatment would actually be adjusted differently than that of a, a white person. And what this says is that something is different about my lungs and my kidneys and my ability to, to have a baby and that for some reason it's a biological trait, but that's just wrong. And so these tools you know, are used on a daily basis to decide um, again, like who gets medication and, and different treatment plans and they're just unintended consequences that we know cause harm. And we know as, a, as an example, going back to the filtration rates for kidneys, you know, there's a potentially, you know, if I'm identified as a black person, it could suggest a better kidney function. Therefore, if I have a higher filtration rate, it may delay the kind of specialty care that I get um, or delay me getting kidney transplantation. And so these are the ways in which, you know, right now there's much greater interrogation um, and a lot, you know, really led by med students and residents on how are we using race? How is it causing harm? What are the intended consequences and what do we need to dismantle um, this aspect of bias that is built into how we deliver care um, at the healthcare system? And then how do we, also better understand um, the impacts around um, the experience of racism and other forms of oppression in this country. Thank you so much, Dr. Maybank. Um, we are getting a lot of questions about vaccines, and so I'm inclined to uh, turn our conversation in that direction. Um, and by the way, if you have other questions for folks who are watching or listening, please uh, do submit your questions through the chat and we will get to as many as we can. Um, you know, we are at the beginning of this, you know, massive nationwide vaccination effort and many health officials have put equity at the center of their distribution plans. They want communities that have been hit hardest by the virus to be among the first to get the vaccine. And at the same time, there's a lot of hesitancy. Um, Dr. Betancourt, maybe I could go back to you and you know, have you tell us what kind of doubts you are hearing from your patients and what kind of plans are you making to try to counter them? Yes, so I mean, I think we've all stated the, the obvious that you know, the mistrust that exists is well-earned, historic, and, and evidence-based. So it should be you know, no surprise that communities of color are concerned about receiving uh, you know, a vaccine, just like many people are, but magnified at a much higher level. Surveys are showing that, you know, common sense will tell you that. 
And it's a, it's a problem that I think we've been thinking about, I assume all of us have been thinking about for a while. How do we begin to start to message to our communities that you know, we do believe the vaccine is safe, we do believe it's important, um, we do believe it is the path towards uh, you know, normal, but, but I, you know, it's challenging here because as we're trying to center equity and we're trying to do the right thing, right? We're trying to say, okay, we want to, for example, in Mass General, we're going to target hotspot communities first and vulnerable populations first. These are communities, um, and uh, Dr. Warren was talking about this, that with the diffusion lag, they never get anything first, right? And so now you're going to come to them and they've been decimated uh, and, you know, nobody's cared for them. And now you're going to say, hey, guess what? You know, we want you to have it first. So there's an inherent challenge that although we're doing it with, with the right intentions, the real concern here and the misinformation that's bubbling up is very, very real. So it is about messaging, but it has to be done by trusted messengers like the people you see here. It has to be done in you know, ways that uh, people can you know, uh, have some of their concerns alleviated in a, in a culturally competent way. And so messaging is just one piece. The second part is we need to stand up and demonstrate, hey, I'm doing this, but not just doctors, nurses, all row groups doing it together. Uh, and, you know, this is going to be a this is going to be a journey. And the surveys are telling us that everybody's like, yeah, I'm good with the vaccine, but not me first. Everybody else wants others to go first. Truth of the matter is healthcare workers are going to go first. And so uh, I think we will uh, set the tone. But it's not just healthcare workers, doctors and nurses in our hospital. You know, if we are targeting the emergency unit, uh, our intensive care and COVID units, we are targeting everyone who works there from environmental services to materials management to nutrition and food services. And so we want to be equitable in those ways. But for some of those people working in those areas, it's going to be more challenging to secure buy-in uh, than from others. And so I'm saying we need to and are being very deliberate about how we structure uh, our strategy and how we actually carve out time and space to make sure that our most vulnerable within our walls, uh, who are healthcare, part of our healthcare team, are able to get the vaccine uh, and not left behind. You know, I've been um, uh, reporting on this a lot. I've been attending some committee meetings that California is having where they are discussing, you know, after healthcare workers and residents of long-term care facilities, you know, who comes next after that. And in California, there are some really interesting discussions uh, led by, by advocates, but also by our officials who are talking about um, trying to incorporate historical injustice in the consideration of who gets the vaccine first. And they're basically saying, maybe this, maybe by prioritizing some groups, it could be a way of redressing past harms. And Dr. Wyatt, I wanted to ask you, how, how do you see this? Do you see early access to the vaccine as a way of potentially healing relationships with communities of color? Yeah, I, I see it as, as part of that. Um, and first, I'll reference the uh, Kaiser's uh, undefeated survey that tells you a lot about what we need to know. When Black women and Black men say, this is not a good time to be Black. So we need to start to think about how to overcome that feeling. It is a feeling. It's a feeling that's born out of, uh, and I'll, I'll say it this way in a very personal way, it's a feeling born out of lack of love lack of respect, and lack of compassion. Uh, so when we rush in and say, now we want to love you and show you compassion by giving you uh, the, the vaccine, we got to do more than that. Um, and that work actually should have started back uh, in the spring, not now, because for many people I've talked to, including the call just before this one, it feels rushed. 
Um, so there's a, a lot of work to be done. And we've got to demonstrate in a very vulnerable way. And, and as we call it, we got to practice vulnerability with these communities, with these populations, uh, and go into those communities and sit and listen and ask for permission uh, and, and do that with respect and do that with humility. You know, I, I go to my young barber when I lived in Chicago there on the near west side, and, and I ask him a simple question. When you go into your primary care doctor, what is the most important thing to you? And, and without hesitation, he said, I want to feel respected. So, so can we have some type of truth and reconciliation approach that says, I'm sorry, we apologize, we're going to do better. And we're going to demonstrate to you the ways we're going to do better. That is the vaccine, but it's much more than that, that we're prepared and preparing for and strategizing for, and we will act this time. And we will demonstrate the act, because as I've said many times before, to not to do this and then to not act in a robust way is a violent act, and it will damage trust even more, and we will have more ground to catch up. So there are people that look like me um, that, you know, that's willing to go out to the community and say, trust me, I will be in line when my turn comes. All too often with, with black people that came into my practice, they would say, I will trust you because you are black. I, and, and white patients who would come and say, I will trust you because as a black physician, I know you had it tougher just getting through medical school. Uh, so, so that's the real conversations that take place in physicians' offices. And there needs to be outreach to, to the communities that have been marginalized, that have been disrespected, have been ignored, and in a robust, rapid response way, uh, began to address all of that. It's always good to start with, we apologize. Thank you. Um, Dr. Maybank, as an extension of that, as we, you know, talking about building trust and, and, and having trusted messengers deliver, um, this message. Uh, in California, we had a pastor of an African-American church ask our state surgeon general how he should handle vaccine hesitancy in his, in his community. He said, you know, given the history of medical experimentation on Black bodies like Tuskegee, what can I say to my parishioners to encourage them to get vaccinated? Um, Dr. Maybank, what would your advice be? Yes, my advice would be totally aligned with what Ron just said. I mean, I think um, the advice from as the physician who's speaking or the healthcare worker that's speaking to the community to start off with one acknowledging that their fears are rational. You know, I think there's a lot of concern and, and blame gets placed on people, right? For why they don't do things or why they don't get vaccines or why they don't take medicines. But we need to acknowledge that these fears and concerns are rational. It's a lived experience. Um, we have lots of documentation, right? Our data now shows it really in, in the science space. So we need to acknowledge and validate um, that experience. I think to say sorry and, and we apologize and we recognize how that has caused, how our decisions as an institution and as society has caused harm. Um, and I think as a physician, and I, I think many of us now who are kind of at the, you know, we're, we're messengers, do communicate, you know, so I will be taking, you know, the vaccine when my time is available. I'm not a frontline physician at this point anymore in my career. Um, but when that time comes, um, I believe that the vaccine is safe and effective. There has been 
um, tremendous acceleration, understanding you know the fears because around the time frame. But there has been lots of kind of checks and balances through this process. And the data tells many of us that this is a safe and effective vaccine. And for that reason, I trust it. And I also acknowledge that I have the privilege to be able to trust it. I've spent many years in school, so I can understand the data. This is what I do, you know. So you have to be able to play that balance of kind of accepting and seeing where somebody is at and meeting them at that moment and then addressing our own context and privilege. The one thing that I think is, is really critical that, and, and Dr. Rhea Boyd says this a lot, she's a pediatrician. And, you know, you even if, you know, we get communities to fully trust, we're not going to solve inequities. We're not gonna solve the realities around people not wanting to get vaccines without focusing on the systems and the structures. She says, it's not about trust, it's about racism. Racism set up this context of experience. So it's feeling, but it's also a literal experience that's been passed down generations. And so we can't just talk about, we're not gonna trust our way out of this moment. We have to really also, if we want sustainable change, then we really gotta be focused as systems and messengers on what are we gonna do within our context of our healthcare systems, our public health systems, our societal, our society around racism and, and understanding that that is the root cause of why communities are concerned and why they don't wanna get vaccines. Thank you, Dr. Maybank. Dr. Wen, I wanna come back to you because as we've heard now, you know, it, it's the talk itself is is not going to be enough that we have to actually do something about the system and about how we deliver this vaccine. Dr. Wen, what are some of the logistical things that health officials can do with distribution that will actually, you know, make it remove the barriers, make it easier for people to get the vaccine? Yeah, I, I appreciate the question, but I just wanted to, if I can, reflect a moment on what my colleague said. I sure. just, um, I, I really love the comments um, about how we need to understand, first of all, where our patients are coming from. Um, those who are expressing degrees of vaccine hesitancy, people are not in the same boat, right? If we ask our patients, and um, and, and as I have, I've been asking my, my patients, and the CDC, by the way, recommends in their toolkit um, that we as clinicians start talking to our patients now about vaccines, even if they're not able to receive the vaccine yet, because we only have it available right now for healthcare workers and, um, and, and nursing home residents, um, but we should begin the conversations. And it's been interesting to me to see what patients will say as their reasons for why they're hesitant. Many people are saying, this is new, I don't know about this yet. I want to wait a little bit. And, you know, it, that's a very different answer from somebody who says, I don't think COVID is real. It's not a big problem. And still very different from, from those who are expressing hesitancy because of, um, of, of historical injustices in their community. And so I think understanding where people are coming from and accepting where they are and meeting them where they are is going to be a really important part of that. I think part of um, establishing trust is also going to be proving that we are trustworthy. And that also includes being attentive to our patients' other needs. I think um, going back to something that, that that Dr. White was saying. It's not just showing up and saying, here, we have this great magic solution for you. Who is going to trust us then? But also to deliver on the other things that our communities are, are looking for too, I think has to be a big part of this. Another important part that as, as has been said is credible messengers. And I think April, to your question about the logistical things that 
health officials can be doing now, it, it, it does involve enlisting these credible messengers in the communities and asking them also for how they can be of assistance. I mean, I talked to a, one of our local pastors, um, who's the head of a Baptist church here in Baltimore, and what he would like to do, and he's been talking to our health department, is can there be at some point, not immediately, but at some point, can there be some kind of vaccination clinic in his church? And he is very happy to be at the very front of the line and roll up his sleeve and get vaccinated in front of his congregants first. And I think, you know, we need to really be listening to the voices of our community and having our health department have the resources very critically to do this work because the same individuals who have been running, testing, contact tracing, figuring out um, masking and other restrictions, they are the same people who are now tasked with doing vaccination. The, um, uh, the state health officials across the country have estimated that we need 8.5 $4 billion to run a successful vaccination program, because this is the largest of such program that we've ever seen um, in this kind of time period ever in our country. And we need the resources to do that. And so being having the resources will also be a, a critical uh, part of, of doing that as well. And then I think the last thing that I'll mention is the importance of having practical interventions. And I mentioned this before too, but I think so often when you have people making policy on the federal level, and I don't mean any particular administration, this is not a political statement at all, but rather that there often is a disconnect between federal policies that are set, even state policies that are set, and what one might experience on the local level. And so even something that I'm worried about as an example is when we say that we want to vaccinate healthcare workers as the first group, what does that even mean? Because right now, it means that big hospital systems are getting access to lots of vaccines, but people who are home health aides are getting left behind. People who work for smaller rural clinics and even small urban clinics, but that are not associated directly with the hospital are, are being left behind as well. And so I hope we'll just be very attentive to the distribution challenges. But I think the way we accomplish that is by, um, is by very critically funding and letting the local health departments that are on the ground lead this work. Thank you. Um, I'd like to bring in some questions from our audience. Um, we have a question about homeless populations. What can we do to prevent homeless populations from falling further into COVID health disparities, especially in thinking about COVID vaccines? Um, and I think, um, Dr. Bencore, I'm inclined to have you answer that question, but if you uh, would rather toss to someone else, feel free. I mean, I, I, I don't want to punt the ball, but I think Dr. Wynn, you know, in her role in Baltimore, probably, um, you know, focused a lot on homeless issues and, and may want to comment here. Um, I'll just say quickly, you know, we, we have Boston Healthcare for the Homeless, obviously vulnerable populations and populations in nature are very, very high risk. And, uh, you know, being able to track, vaccinate, uh, you know, the, these, these uh, settings, I think, are, are high risk and it's something we've been chasing down since the beginning of the pandemic. And so this strategy is going to require, you know, strong outreach, really leveraging and, and resourcing well uh, our organizations uh, and, and our partnerships that we have with the homeless population. But, you know, I'll defer to my colleagues as, as well here. Dr. Wen, do you have thoughts about, you know, what what can be done to reach the homeless population? I mean, I, I would definitely agree with with what Dr. Betancourt said in terms of um, enlisting the 
groups that are already doing this work here in Baltimore, as an example, Healthcare for, for, uh, for the Homeless is an incredible organization. I know it's in many other places too, but here, I think if that were a priority in the city, then we would absolutely have Healthcare for the Homeless um, help to lead this type of effort. I would also say that the person, the questioner brings up an important point about how housing has to be considered part of healthcare as well. And I think we have seen that, and I know Dr. Wyatt and Dr. Maybink and others have also mentioned earlier about social determinants. And I think in this healthcare crisis, we have really seen how housing, education, um, the economy, jobs, right, everything is interrelated and relates back to public health and vice versa. Thank you. Another question, um, what advice would you have for the Biden administration in setting health priorities for communities of color? And Dr. Maybank, since you've been thinking a lot about policy, putting you know, ideas and policy into action, I thought maybe you could answer that question. What advice do you have for the Biden administration? Yes, without getting too political at it. Um, I think, you know, and we've been working, you know, AMA naturally has relationships with whatever administration um, is in. And we've been thinking about this in terms of putting forward um, what are our um, advocacy and policy ideas to ensure that we're embedding equity and, and doing it differently. So not segregating like an equity agenda. And I think you can do that, but also how are we looking at everything that's kind of coming like in front of us right now and ensuring that equity is embedded, a racial justice lens is embedded in all of our asks, you know, with the administration as we're talking with them. I think specifically though, you know, we've seen some good movement so far. Um, we already knew there was in, within the context of their platform, um, racial justice explicitly. We have never really seen that from a, a presidential um, or a presidential elect um, administration coming forward to, to really explicitly name racial justice. So there's potentially a lot to build on. The big part is the accountability to it. Um, and and what's going to say that, what's going to be put in place that particularly says that they're going to do it and honor, I think, this lens of, of racial justice. And we see movement. We see um, Dr. Marcella Nunez-Smith, um, you know, who specifically, you know, is, is on the COVID task force, um, leading the equity part of the work. So that's a tremendous demonstration of accountability and commitment to doing this work. I think, though, moving forward um, to make sure that there are going to, there's going to be infrastructure, and we know there are proposals that are, have come forward already and ideas around this, to have um, offices of equity or, or centers of equity that are not just at, you know, again, siloed within HHS, you know, the Office of Minority Health, but that kind of move more broadly, you know, and look more broadly, that are coming, that are in direct contact with the White House um, and coming from the White House, but also have context across all um, of the um, agencies across the federal administration so that there is equity looked at at all of the, the, the areas and policies and, you know, at, at the federal level um, and, and to ensure that there's an infrastructure to move forward into this work. And so there's a lot of reframing now around not just equity in all policies and ensuring, that, again, the infrastructure and accountability to that, but also even health in all policies you know, and, and understanding that for most, and, and this is the whole context of the social determinants of health. It's kind of a little bit jargony now, but it's to understand that there are health impacts and implications if you don't have housing, if you don't have good quality housing, if you don't have good quality education or good economic opportunity, you know? So that means you have, if we really are interested in a healthy society, we have to understand what are the health impacts of the policies and the decisions that we are making 
not only within our health agencies, but throughout our entire um, government. Mm -hmm. And one of the, in understanding sort of, you know, the structural um, origins of, of some of these inequities, we also look to the stereotypes and bias that are part of our healthcare system too, and the way that it affects decisions that doctors make and then the care that patients get. And Dr. Betancourt, I know that you have um, looked at this topic of implicit bias for, for a long time. How have you seen it play out during the pandemic and how has the conversation changed over the years about how to address it? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, I think ultimately, you know, there's racism and then there's, you know, this next piece, which is this gray zone that, that, that's, I, that I'd say is, you know, um, very powerful and very subversive and incredibly dangerous as it relates to the work we've seen around disparities in care, right? So this idea that, you know, we are all human and we are subject to making assumptions about people as caregivers, you know, that, that is proof positive and, and that does impact care decisions and the way we communicate and that does impact quality and outcomes. That is no longer hypothesis or conjecture that's been well proven. And I think that the good news here is that we have over time been talking about the science of this, been trying to communicate to caregivers that, that we aren't immune despite our best intentions and, uh, and you know, our, our best goals here. Uh, and, and the evidence has shown that, yes, we are making progress. 2016, now 43% of doctors now admitting that they have biases that impact their clinical decision-making. How does it play out? It plays out in a case that happened in New York early in the pandemic where an African-American woman showed up, I think, two or three times with COVID-like symptoms, was never offered a test, ended up you know, dying. And the question became, was there you know, a stereotype? Was there implicit bias? Was there racism in how she was managed and, uh, you know, she kept being told, you know, it's asthma, just go home. You're going to be fine. Just go home. And so those are the questions, April, I think that are, that are, that stick with us. And this issue of implicit bias has been well studied around referral to renal transplantation, referral to cardiology, specialist care, the types of care that happens in emergency rooms where people are stressed under time constraints, multitasking, the hallmarks and environment that activates stereotypes. So, you know, there's no doubt that this has played out over the pandemic. It probably still will, and it's going to play out after the pandemic. And we need to continue to uh, really uh, address this head on. And Dr. Wyatt, I know, you know, I've, I've talked to a lot of different, you know, medical um, schools and hospitals who are trying to tackle implicit bias with training and, um, what is your opinion, Dr. Wyatt, about how effective this, this training is? Or... Yes, I think uh, it's too early to know. It's not new as a concept. And, um, you know, many organizations uh, use the implicit association test, the one that's based, created there at Harvard. So I would say that it is a necessary first step. Um, and I would go as far as to say that uh, I would recommend that it would be a requirement uh, that you have some type of implicit bias training as a first step. Uh, but then what comes next is going to be really critical. Uh, and, and quite frankly, part of that has to be um, um, dealing with institutional and structural racism. You have to begin to understand how that operates uh, in medical schools and training programs in our institutions. We have to begin to understand uh, that that the concept of whiteness uh, is a political construct uh, that needs to be dismantled. Uh, and, and that needs, those conversations need to start to take place, to take place as soon as possible. 
um, so that we can undo these things, so that we can begin to uh, put in place de-biasing techniques. And those are out there and available that organizations need to start to look at. You know, I, I've long advocated even that if we have to go the regulatory accreditation route for programs to say, here are some things that you should be doing at a minimum, which Joe mentioned, collecting and validating and stratifying race, ethnicity, and language data. Uh, same for sexual orientation and gender identity data. Same for implicit bias training. The same for interpretive services. Uh, and moving beyond, and I don't want to diminish it, uh, diminish it, moving beyond the cultural competency uh, learning modules, check the box. Now I'm a culturally competent expert. And in many cases, we create people that are more biased when, when they do that training. So moving toward concepts around structural competency, understanding structural humility and, and just humility in general uh, will be really critical to this. And, 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 you know, the ACGME is an organization I'm working with. They're already doing this with some training programs and they're building in this type of training uh, into training programs. So, a long way to go, but my hope is that um, you know these efforts have started and we can sustain them over time. Thank you. Um, we are um, down to the last few minutes, and so um, just you know one last question that I think I'll direct to you, Dr. Wen, and and if uh, we have time for the others to chime in with their opinion as well, I think that would be great. But um, we have a question from a healthcare provider. You know, what can we as healthcare providers do? to mitigate disparities that our patients are experiencing? I mean, I'll start, but I, I, I am aware that all my colleagues, uh, we all have <laughs> other commitments that we must attend to right now as well. I mean, I think even asking the question um, in this case is really critical, being open um, and also being Empath empathetic, compassionate with one another as we go through this, I think is a really important part of it, knowing that we are approaching this um, because we care and because we really want to do the right thing. Not everybody can is always, not, all, not everybody knows the language, not everybody knows the right words to use, but we want to get there and we want to be attentive to learn from our patients, from one another, I think is an important start. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Let's leave it there. Our panelists are all doctors working during a pandemic. So I want to just thank all of you um, for who attended the program and thank you to our panelists. Dr. Joseph Bettencourt, Physician and Vice President, Chief Health uh, Equity and Inclusion Officer at Massachusetts General. Dr. Aletha Maybank, Physician and Chief Health Equity Officer and Group Vice President of the American Medical Association. Dr. Lena Wen, Emergency Physician and Visiting Professor of Health Policy and Management at George Washington University School of Public Health. And Dr. Ronald Wyatt, Physician and Vice President and Patient Safety Officer at MCIC. Vermont. We hope today's program has provided some new ways to look at the subject of inequity in healthcare, and we thank Kaiser Permanente for their support of the program. I'm April Domboski from KQED Public Radio, and now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned. You've been listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Stitcher. If you like what you've heard, please consider supporting our work and help us bring 500 programs a year to listeners like you. Go to commonwealthclub.org donate. Think your way around the world with our travel programs to exciting domestic and international destinations. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live at our events. Thank you for listening and for your support.